All right, so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be starting a new sermon series, which is called To the Cross and the Resurrection. Um, what we're going to be doing is looking at the last chapters of the book of Matthew and explore uh, the days leading up to Jesus' death and then on Easter, his resurrection. Today we'll be looking at the plot against Jesus, and so just the first part of Matthew 26, and just kind of looking at the questions of what events led up to Jesus' betrayal? Why was he betrayed? Uh, what does it say about him, and what does it say about us? So as believers in Christ, I think it's easy to think that it's weird to think that anyone would have wanted him dead, because we all think he's one of the greatest people or the greatest person to ever live. Um, But many Jewish leaders wanted him gone, and so to understand why it is that he was crucified, um, we need to understand the context of the times, who the major players were, and why Jesus would challenge and be a letdown to the Jewish leaders of that day and age. So the first thing we have to understand about Jesus and why he went to the cross is that um, when Jesus was alive, essentially um, the the world belonged to the Romans, and the Romans were 100% in charge. And so when you're looking at paintings and and what... This painting is Julius Caesar. He's holding the... The world is his oyster per se, and death is going before him, and death is behind him. And you see his, you know, the army behind, and everyone is in anguish, and he's on this beautiful horse, and it's also got this tiger skin on it, which is, you know, like he's been around the world. He owns the world. I mean, he is the man, and death obviously is something that he is able to control. So the first century belonged to the Romans. The irony is, is that the or the chosen people of God exist underneath their authority. So on the one hand, Rome rules the world, but then the chosen people of God are actually underneath their authority. So Jerusalem and the temple that existed there were owned essentially by Rome. That was Rome's property. And so the Jews were slaves in Egypt, and now they're ruled by Rome. And so um, from the Jewish perspective, they should have been the ones who were in charge. Like, we're the people of God. We're the chosen one of God. You know, uh, the narrative is all about us representing God. And But unfortunately, the Egyptians and the Romans have controlled us, and so they try to defeat Rome. And so in the year 167 B.C., so before Jesus shows up, there's something that's called the Maccabean Revolt. And the Maccabean Revolt, very important, it lasts seven years. And so the Maccabees, they rise up against Rome, and they fight against Rome, and they last about seven years, which is a significant period of time to actually fight Rome, if you know anything about how like amazing Rome was at military stuff. But the reason behind this in part is that being a Roman and being stationed in Jerusalem was actually like not an honorable position. And even though nowadays many of us want to go there to check it out because of its historical significance, for a Roman, they didn't actually want to be in Jerusalem because it was far away from where they were born or lived. And it was also a very hostile 
area to be. And so what you have is a Roman group that's not that motivated fighting against a very motivated group. And so very similar to what you see right now in Russia and Ukraine, and that Russia is invading Ukraine. And Russia, for the most part, is not that motivated, you know, but Russia or Ukraine is very motivated. Does that make sense? And so the Romans are like, well, we're not even sure I want to be here. And then you have this group that is very motivated. So the Maccabees take on Rome and lose, but this event is very meaningful. And um, even today, when the Jews celebrate Hanukkah, it's actually in celebration of the Maccabean revolt. So this event that they still practice to this day has significance going all the way back to when the Maccabeans like rose up and it commemorates the, the rededication of the second temple in Jerusalem. So this whole like this revolt and under Roman rule, all of these things. And so in the midst of this, when you read the Old Testament, you see there's always been this promise of the Messiah. And what we see is that the Maccabeans weren't it because they rose up and many people thought like, okay, this is it. And the Messiah is either here, he's going to come from this group of people and he's going to overthrow Rome. But eventually he didn't prove to be the Messiah because they ended up losing. And so this sets the stage for Jewish expectations in that they wanted to do to Rome what Rome was doing to them. They were the chosen people of God. They were the head, they're not the tail. They were supposed to be the ones who were ruling, uh, and they were the Roman, the Gentiles were supposed to be uh, serving underneath them. And so they anticipated this, the Messiah, the chosen one, would be the new King, King David, and he'd be a charismatic leader and an amazing warrior, and he would defeat Goliath, just like David did. That Rome is untouchable, they're huge, they destroy everything, they, they, they just win every battle. And so they assume, like, hey, here's the deal, we need a guy who's going to come in and defeat Goliath. And so then you get Jesus. And here's Jesus washing feet. And he says, do you not understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. This would have been, and was, a major letdown. Because they wanted someone to come in and do to Rome what Rome was doing to them. And they were looking for a David to rise up against Goliath. And then here's this guy that's saying, I am the Lord and teacher, uh, but I'm going to wash your feet. Which was what a servant might do or someone who was lesser than might do. And so the Jewish people were like, what is this guy doing? On top of that, he is born in a manger. He's not born into royalty. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. His example is humility, again, washing feet. His sword is his word. His greatest weapons are grace, love, and humility. And not only that, he constantly calls out the religious leaders on their legalism. So it's not just that he's doing this, but then he just calls out the religious leaders on all of their legalism, even to the point, so much so, that at this point in time, if anyone were to call you a Pharisee or to call me a Pharisee in religious circles, that's essentially a put-down now. Don't be such a Pharisee. 
That's because Jesus kept calling these people out, the Pharisees. So we actually see it as like somewhat of a, a put down at this point in time. Jesus, to say the least, why does he go to the cross? Because he wasn't what they were looking for. And at the same time, he calls them out on their bad theology. And so essentially, he's got to go. So when we think about, like, why would anyone want to crucify Jesus? He seems like such a great guy. I mean, you know, wonderful to hang around with. But ultimately, he did not live up to their expectations, and he also called them out. So this kind of sets the stage for Matthew 26. We're going to look at a chunk of Scripture today. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16. So Matthew 26, 1 through 16, when Jesus had finished saying all of these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Cephas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot amongst the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she had poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price than the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So in this section of scripture, um, we're in the season of Passover, which um, unless you guys celebrate Passover, is one of the main festivals within Judaism and still very important up to this day. Uh, Passover is the celebration of the Jews coming out of slavery from Egypt. And so you can see this in some of the movies, you know, there's slaves in Egypt. Moses goes and he tells Pharaoh, like, hey, let my people go. And uh, Pharaoh says, I'm going to take all the straw out of you being able to lay the bricks and it makes it harder. And then the people are groaning. And so God sends all these plagues to essentially show Pharaoh, that he's more powerful than him, and to you know make him uh, uh, let the Jewish people go. And so the last of the plagues that comes through uh, Egypt is essentially death. And so this angel comes through Egypt, and the firstborn, all the firstborn are going to die unless you have the blood of the lamb on your doorpost. If you have the blood of the lamb, you you find a lamb without blemish, and you sacrifice it, and you take its blood, and you put the blood over the doorpost. And then essentially death will pass over your house. And so this idea of Passover, um, again, is putting the blood on, on your doorposts. And so Jesus, when Jesus says, as you know, again, we're in the season of Passover, the Son of Man will be crucified. You have to understand that the disciples didn't really know. 
at this moment. They're like, we don't really know what you're talking about. This all seems so weird to us. Like you're talking about, like I have to be handed over to the officials and I'm going to go get crucified. They're, they're not necessarily on the same page as him, even though that they're telling him. Um, and what he's doing is still pretty mysterious to them. But none of this is really mysterious to the chief priests. Again, um, Jesus has to go. That, that, that is what they certainly do know, is that he's got to go. The things that he's saying and the things that he's doing are really challenging us, uh, calling some of our theology and our actions into question, and so he has to go. And that his theology is really gaining popularity, so much so that if we try and stop him uh, at the festival, there might be a riot, meaning that a lot of people were really starting to buy into Jesus' idea of like, God and what it means to follow him. And so in this moment, and we'll talk about this more because it's just so important and, and I, it's just really important, is that they aren't about to celebrate any Passover. It's not just going to be another Passover this year. What they're about to participate in is a Passover of cosmic significance. It's not just going to be that you're going to take a lamb and put it on the doorpost. This, this Passover is going to have like cosmic ramification. It's going to change the very fabric of all of creation, this Passover. And so what we see is we're, we're not going to sacrifice just any lamb. We're going to sacrifice the sacrificial lamb. It's not going to be a Passover, but the Passover once and for all. And so what can we take from this scripture? And I think that when I look at the first part of all of this, uh, is that the disciples kind of knew, but they didn't really know. And if you, when you read through the gospel, what you'll see is oftentimes the, the disciples, they oftentimes don't get it. They're like lost. They seem as if they get it wrong. I mean, Peter constantly gets it wrong. Uh, uh, James and John, they want to call down fire on all these people. And Jesus is like, you know, he doesn't say, whoa, hold up. That's my translation. But he's like, whoa, hold up. Like, that's not what we're going to do in this moment. And so oftentimes you see that the disciples just don't, don't get it. And I think that a good takeaway for us is that you not knowing is okay. And you... As you follow Jesus and you're not completely certain about things, that's okay. In that our uncertainty doesn't change who Jesus is. It doesn't stop him from being Lord and King. And as, again, as you look, they, the disciples were always getting it wrong. How often do you feel the pressure to constantly get it right in your relationship with God? Like, I have to get this right. I need to be doing this. I should be doing this more. I ought to be doing more of this. Am I believing the right way? Am I doing all the right things? I think I'm, I saw these stickers, and I'm like, I think I need to get one of these. <laughs> like, do you, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? Do I pray enough? Am I, is this the right translation of scripture that I should be reading? Do I read enough to, you know, oh, I've got these thoughts that I'm having in my head. Oh, he knows those. Oh, this is horrible. Jesus is watching me. And so here's the thing. When Jesus is watching you, what does he see? When Jesus watches you, what he sees is what he's always seen. 
his children, whom he unconditionally loves. That's who he sees. The disciples got it wrong. They rarely ever got it right. And even when they got it wrong, you know, and he asks uh, Peter, who do you say I am? Well, you're the Messiah. And he's like, you got, it, you got it right. And then right after that, Peter gets it wrong, like completely to the point where Jesus is like, get away from me, Satan. You're like, I'm pretty sure that's pretty wrong. But when Jesus sees you, what does he see? He sees his child whom he unconditionally loves. Unconditionally. That there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. He loves you. That's grace. That's acceptance. Does he want you to change? Of course. But this, it's not that you have to change that makes you change. It's that you're unconditionally loved that makes you change. I'm accepted. Uh, he loves me as I am. He, he has better things for me. The things I keep involving myself in aren't necessarily the best for me. What is the best for me? And, and you love me, and, and, and I want to participate in that. Having doubts not knowing, wondering why or what for. Again, the disciples did this for three years. They're like, we don't know what's going on. And they had all of these questions and they didn't get it right. Except that he loves you as you are right now. Being fascinated by Jesus is totally biblical. And being confused by Jesus is completely biblical. Truly is. The disciples did it for several years. All right, next. In this, so here you have right um, the disciples. I'm going to be crucified, and the the religious leaders. And next, what you have is the wrong slide. Um, oh no, it's not actually. Next, the the Jesus being anointed by the woman. Um, and again, even though we might just gloss over this really quickly. Um, the fact that Jesus is anointed for burial by a woman is a, an exceptionally high compliment to the inclusion of women into the narrative of Jesus. It would be easy to gloss over this rather quickly, but as you read this and you'll see how this is a compliment, it's easy just to gloss over. She doesn't even have a name. Um, it's easy to miss what Matthew does here, but it's something that he does throughout the entire gospel. And, and this is important to me because I think it's important that we know how to read the Bible properly because if you don't, you will miss things that the author is putting in there. So the first thing that Matthew does in this small little section is he creates contrast, so which is a, an artistic technique, something... The part that stands out the most is the red and the yellows because the artist has put the blues, the cool colors on one area and the hot colors in another area. And so your eye is drawn to this idea of them walking down and it's a beautiful, beautiful painting. So this idea of uh, contrast. And so what we see Matthew doing and even just this small little section of Matthew is this, contrast. The disciples don't get it. The religious rulers want him out. That's wrong. A woman anoints Jesus for burial. That is correct. Judas agrees to portray Jesus. That's wrong. And so what you see is this contrast between the wrong way, the people that didn't get it, the people that didn't understand, and then you get the person that does. And so he's trying to draw you to like this section of like wrong, right, wrong. Okay? It would be easy to miss that. 
And so what we see is this woman anoints Jesus with this perfume. And uh, we know that it's expensive because it says it would be worth about a year's wages. And so I checked out what the median average uh, salary would be in the United States right now, which is about $51,000. That's the median. And so we can say, just to help us understand how expensive this would be, it would be a jar of perfume worth $51,000. Which I assume is worth something to everyone in the room. I don't know anyone in here is like, that's pennies. So John also, in John's gospel, he also tells, about the, tells us about the person who said, this should have been sold and given to the poor, which was Judas. And we also find out in John, he didn't care about the poor, John says, because he was a thief. But this is nothing new in terms of if you want to try and, um, if you have an ulterior motive for doing something, even financially, that someone might include helping out the poor as a way to say, like, and this will also help out the poor which is probably still stuff that some people do. It's kind of like when you have, get a, a, a new jacket, which this always cracks me up and I make fun of my kids for doing it. They get a new jacket that they love and it fits in with everyone else and it's really expensive. The thing that oh, almost everyone and my kids will say is like, and it's really comfortable. You guys don't say that? You're like, oh, really? I mean, I just like them because they're so comfortable. It's like, no, you like them because they're cute and in style and expensive, right? So this idea of saying, like, I could have been given to the poor is just like this sideshow for Judas because he didn't really care about the poor. What the disciples and the religious leaders get wrong, this woman gets right. We're not sure how this woman knows what is happening to she, we're not, she wasn't in on the conversation that he's going to get crucified. Uh, she doesn't know probably the significance of him being crucified, but somehow she knows that she's going to anoint Jesus at this dinner because it's meaningful to her. Was it a prophetic word, a gut feeling? Obviously, she's seen him before because she knows who he is, but she pours this oil on Jesus' head to prepare him for burial. Again, this is mysterious to the disciples at the moment. They don't even know what she's doing. They're like, hey, stop, don't do this again. They're kind of aloof to the bigger picture of what is actually going on in this moment. And, um, but her actions point to a bigger reality we all wrestle with. In the previous sermon series we talked about when we were going through the Westminster Catechism and we talked about that the first creed within Christianity is Jesus is Lord. And that would have been one of the things that the early Christians would have recited to one another and saying and in, during that time, it would have been an offense against the state in that it would be illegal to say anyone was Lord outside of Caesar. And so saying Jesus is Lord is very costly. And so that was the earliest creed. Jesus is Lord. And it wasn't just words that you said. You were taking a stance against Rome. Um, but when we think about saying Jesus is Lord in our own life, it's simple and profound. And to say Jesus is Lord means many things. One is I'm not Lord of my own life. That if I say Jesus is Lord, that means that I'm not. That means that he is, that he's the king. He's the one in charge. He's the one that dictates what my life looks like and, and the values that I have and the way that I live my life. Uh, he ha I, I have a king. I exist within a kingdom. 
And so when we see that the disciples are frustrated because Jesus ought to be something, Jesus should be what they want him to be, Jesus isn't living up to their expectations, this woman, again, without a name, and a very high compliment because women in that day and age were very low-ranking people within that the disciples don't understand what going, is going on. The religious leaders are about to get it wrong, but one of the lowest people within that society, without even a name, gets it totally correct. And she worships him by pouring $51,000 over his head. Now here's the thing. Of course, we all would have done the same thing. When you're reading the story, who wouldn't have been the woman? Who wouldn't have been the woman pouring perfume over Jesus? You're like, yeah, I would have done that exact same thing. I get it. Except for when we still have these opportunities to demonstrate that Jesus is Lord of our life, do we? It's not as if Jesus asking us who the Lord of our life is has changed. He hasn't changed. He's still begging these same questions. Am I Lord? Is Jesus Lord? And so Jesus is still giving you opportunities to demonstrate his lordship in your life, to give up what is most important to you, things that are getting in the way of that love. And so when you see this woman, he is her treasure. And she doesn't say that Jesus is Lord. She doesn't have, no, and no one's confused about whether or not Jesus is Lord in her life. She doesn't have to say, Jesus is Lord. Like, wow, obviously he's that important to her. One of the things that I do ask some of my friends is, what's really stopping you from going all in with Jesus? Because I see people kind of like on the fence, like, not want to. Uh, this seems scary. I'm not sure about him. I don't, you know, control all of these things. What is stopping you from going all in with Jesus? When I was a younger uh, follower of Christ, um, one of the things, and this is no joke, one of the reasons that really, because when I first started coming to this church uh, a long time ago, I was born again, and I was, you know, say that I was a follower of Christ, but I was really afraid of actually, like, saying yes like in my heart, like really, really deeply, like, okay, I'm all in. Um, and there were some events that happened that were, you know, really eye-opening to me that led me in that direction. But one of the things that I was really afraid of, I really believed that Jesus was going to call me to be a missionary in some far-off jungle and I'd have nothing and I'd just be stuck out there and like weird and it would just be horrible. But really, in the midst of all of that, I didn't want to give up control. I didn't want to give up control to him. That was probably the biggest thing, that it felt, it felt somewhat powerless to be out of control. Like, I wanted to make all of my own decisions. I didn't want to think that he was in charge of making decisions for me. And as I've grown older in the faith, um, and I would assume many of you have experienced the same things, a lot of the things that he asked me to do might be difficult in certain ways, but I actually find out there are things that I never even knew that I wanted to do to begin with. Like he invites me into something, and I'm like, man, that seems so scary, but then in the end, 
it's like, wow, I, I didn't know that I loved this so much. Is Jesus mysterious? Yes. Is he difficult to hang out with sometimes? Of course. Will he ask you to grow up and take risks and love the unlovable, even love yourself and bow to him as king of the cosmos? He will. Again, not the disciples or the religious leaders, but a woman with no name worshipped him, and not just with words. It cost her to worship, and the reality is it will cost you as well. But, this woman in heaven right now hasn't thought about the cost of the perfume that she poured on Jesus' head once since she has been in his presence for however long. Not once. And oftentimes we think about the cost, like what is this going to cost me? She has not thought about the cost of the perfume once. Once. Since being in the presence of God in heaven, let's just say for however 1,900 years or however long she's been up there. Not once. The cost of our worship to him and declaring him our Lord, both in word and in deed, we will never look back and think the cost was too high, ever. Okay, we're going to have communion. Um, we do communion every Sunday, and it's, we'll talk about this next week. Something that Jesus started at the Passover meal, actually, in that this is the sign of the new covenant that Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Then he gave, passed around wine and said, this is my blood poured out for your sins. And it's significant. It's just bread and in that the key, the, the symbols that he uses for the covenant are everyday things found in everyday households because the kingdom of God is meant to be an everyday thing and in, in us accessible to us. So the way that we do communion here is we come down the center aisle and you take a piece of the cracker and you dip it into the wine and then you'll go around the sides like this uh, and then hold on to it and we will take it together and the communion table is open to anyone who is a follower of Christ or anyone who wants to start following Jesus today. So if you'd like to take communion, please come on down.
Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done to us. That you came to take our death and to take our sin and to go and prepare a place for us that will be immeasurably more amazing than we could even imagine. Thank you for calling us into your family. Help us to see those things that we need to lay down and give to you as Lord of our life. Let's partake. Why don't we stand? I'm just going to pray a prayer blessing over us. Uh, if you needed prayer for anything, there will be some folks up here that would love to lay hands on you and pray for you. If you have anything in your life that maybe you can't get traction in emotionally, spiritually, physically, uh, we do believe in laying on of hands, that the Holy Spirit does powerful things and when we do that. And so if there's something that you would like prayer for, please come on up. Well, Lord, we thank you for this time to be able to gather together. We thank you for the gift of the church, brothers and sisters, to be able to journey with. Holy Spirit, we ask right now that you would fill us, that you would fill us with your grace and your power to be able to go out and to be able to see your kingdom, to be able to demonstrate your kingdom, to be able to love ourselves, to be able to love the unlovable, and to be able to demonstrate your kingdom in powerful and wonderful ways that is hurting and in need of your kingdom. So we thank you for this time to be able to gather together, and uh, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.